Hey there, it's October, the month where we fall back to standard time, and all of you who don't know the difference between daylight time and standard time will be right on time for the next four months. Because it's not standard time right now, it's daylight saving time. We, all of us, except Arizonans, set our clocks ahead an hour way back in March, and standard time, the S is for standard, vanished and was replaced by daylight saving time, D for short. PST overnight became PDT. Same with MST, CST, and EST. I'm really hoping you'll take note of this because there are those of us in this world who are inclined to take you at your word, meaning that if you schedule a meeting on October 20th at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, that actually and truly means that you intend the meeting to start at 11 a.m. And if I showed up at 11, I'd be in trouble because we all know that 10 a.m. PDT is what you actually meant, even though it's not what you actually said. And if it's too confusing to keep track of daylight and standard time, there's a simple solution. Drop the S or the D. We all know what Eastern time means, so there's not even the slightest possibility for impish confusion or mild rage on anyone's part. So, I'm begging you, learn the difference or leave the middle letter out. Just doing my part to make sure that all of us even those of us who are mildly obsessive-compulsive, are grooving with the rhythm of the seasons. Today's show is about the harvest. I've got four fascinating folks in their harvest years, 50 to 65, that I can't wait to introduce you to. Double Batch Daddy has a new record on the way. It's called Local Lemonade. It drops November 4th, but... I've got an advanced copy of the first single, and I'll be spinning it on our show today. In honor of Halloween, I'll read you Winston Churchill's first published essay, a short horror story called Man Overboard. And later on, I'll talk about bringing in the harvest from my vegetable garden and in my life. So, here we are. The light is slipping away, and we're heading into the darkness. Sunrise in Los Angeles came at 7.01, and it sets at 6.15 this evening. The days of a sunny tennis date after work are over. Dog walks are confined to the morning hours, and it won't be long before you'll be dropping off and picking up your kids from school in the dark. It's twilight time where the line between light and darkness, between heat and cold, between life and death, is at its thinnest. We're about to celebrate a holiday where we're invited to consider that great question, what if? What if you could bring someone back from the dead with the power of science? What if it's possible to live forever? You only need to feed on the blood of your fellow humans. What if all the dead came roaring back to life, seeking only to eat our brains? What if the youngest and most vulnerable among us are susceptible to having their bodies taken over by malevolent spirits? Are you brave enough to face these terrors head on? Can you do it with a smile even as you scream? 
Will you don the outfit of your greatest fear and wait in the dark to frighten others? Will you go along with the notion that for one topsy-turvy night, children are allowed, even encouraged, to run around the neighborhood threatening your neighbors with a trick unless they pay a tribute of Kit Kats, Snickers, and Smarties? Or maybe you're a Day of the Dead devotee. Perhaps you'll erect an altar that honors those who've passed through the veil that separates the living from the dead. Maybe you'll lure your deceased loved ones across the divide with their favorite food and drink, with pictures of the good times you shared, with baseball cards and perfume and football jerseys and college pennants. And maybe you'll enjoy the feeling of having them with you again, if only for an evening or two. Maybe you'll head to church for All Saints Day to welcome the cloud of witnesses who pray for us in the afterlife, even as we pray for them here on earth. However you honor the twilight of the year, I hope you'll do it with intention. It is good to face the fear of the inevitable. For when you do, you rob it of its power to keep you from getting back to the light. Darkness, after all, is part of the rhythm of the seasons. Every day heads into darkness, and we know the darkness leads to a sunrise. To be afraid of the dark is to be afraid of half your life. To welcome the darkness, to embrace it, to make it a game, to celebrate it, is the right and good way to approach the twilight of our year. Neath the low waning moon Late in the year I'm struck by the size As it just starts to rise And the street lights compete But the moon glows sweet Reflecting the sun long Nights grow longer now, and the nights will grow longer still. Neath the low waning moon, late in the year, it's easy for me to only see. Might have been what I could not win. How life gives us endings, and the nights grow longer now, and the nights will grow longer still. Attempt to woo you at least entertain.
can't wait to entangle our embrace to kiss your face. Our life is lived together. Let tonight grow longer now. Let tonight grow longer still. You might know Winston Churchill as the British Prime Minister responsible for the victory over fascism in World War II. You might know him as a scholarly writer, a cigar smoker, or a man of gluttonous tastes. He's all of those things, of course, but he's also the author of this short horror story that has the honor of being the very first piece of writing he ever had published. Man Overboard an episode of The Red Sea by Winston Churchill. It was a little after half-past nine when the man fell overboard. The mail steamer was hurrying through the Red Sea in the hope of making up the time which the currents of the Indian Ocean had stolen. The night was clear, though the moon was hidden behind clouds. The warm air was laden with moisture. The still surface of the waters was only broken by the movement of the great ship, from whose quarter the long, slanting undulations struck out like the feathers from an arrow shaft, and in whose wake the froth and air bubbles churned up by the propeller trailed in a narrowing line to the darkness of the horizon. There was a concert on board. All the passengers were glad to break the monotony of the voyage and gathered round the piano in the companion house. The decks were deserted. The man had been listening to the music and joining in the songs, but the room was hot and he came out to smoke a cigarette and enjoy a breath of the wind which the speedy passage of the liner created. It was the only wind in the Red Sea that night. The accommodation ladder had not been unshipped since leaving Aden, and the man walked out onto the platform as onto a balcony. He leaned his back against the rail and blew a puff of smoke into the air reflectively. The piano struck up a lively tune, and a voice began to sing the first verse of the Rowdy Dowdy Boys. The measured pulsations of the screw were a subdued but additional accompaniment. The man knew the song, 
It had been the rage at all the music halls when he had started for India seven years before. It reminded him of the brilliant and busy streets he had not seen for so long, but was soon to see again. He was just going to join in the chorus when the railing, which had been insecurely fastened, gave way suddenly with a snap, and he fell backward into the warm water of the sea amid a great splash. For a moment, he was physically too much astonished to think. Then he realized he must shout. He began to do this even before he rose to the surface. He achieved a hoarse, inarticulate, half-choked scream. A startled brain suggested the word help, and he bawled this out lustily and with frantic effort six or seven times without stopping. Then he listened. The chorus floated back to him across the smooth water, for the ship had already completely passed by. And as he heard the music, a long stab of terror drove through his heart. The possibility that he would not be picked up dawned for the first time on his consciousness. Then the chorus started again. Then I say, boys, who's for a jolly spree? Run, tongue, tillium, who'll ever drink with me? Help! 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 Shrieked the man now in desperate fear. Fond of a glass now and then, fond of a row or noise. High, high, clear the way for the rowdy, dowdy boys. The last words drawled out fainter and fainter. The vessel was steaming fast. The beginning of the second verse was confused and broken by the ever-growing distance. The dark outline of the great hull was getting blurred. The stern light dwindled. And then he set out to swim after it with furious energy, pausing every dozen strokes to shout long, wild shouts. The disturbed waters of the sea began to settle again to their rest, and widening undulations became ripples. The aerated confusion of the screw fizzed itself upwards and out, The noise of motion and the sounds of life and music died away. The liner was but a single fading light on the blackness of the waters and a dark shadow against the paler sky. At length, full realization came to the man and he stopped swimming. He was alone, abandoned. With that understanding, the brain reeled. He began again to swim, only now, instead of shouting, he prayed mad, incoherent prayers, the words stumbling into one another. Suddenly, a distant light seemed to flicker and brighten. A surge of joy and hope rushed through his mind. They were going to stop, to turn the ship and come back. And with the hope came gratitude. His prayer was answered. Broken words of thanksgiving rose to his lips. He stopped and stared after the light, his soul in his eyes. As he watched it, it grew gradually but steadily smaller. Then the man knew that his fate was certain. Despair succeeded hope. Gratitude gave place to 
curses. Beating the water with his arms, he raved impotently. Foul oaths burst from him, as broken as his prayers and as unheeded. The fit of passion passed, hurried by increasing fatigue. He became silent, silent as was the sea, for even the ripples were subsiding into the glossy smoothness of the surface. He swam on mechanically along the track of the ship, sobbing quietly to himself in the misery of fear. And the stern light became a tiny speck, yellower, but scarcely bigger than some of the stars, which here and there shone between the clouds. Nearly twenty minutes passed, and the man's fatigue began to change to exhaustion. The overpowering sense of the inevitable pressed upon him. With the weariness came a strange comfort. He need not swim all the long way to Suez. There was another course. He would die. He would resign his existence since he was thus abandoned. He threw up his hands impulsively and sank. Down. Down he went through the warm water. The physical death took hold of him and he began to drown. The pain of that savage grip recalled his anger. He fought with it furiously, striking out with arms and legs. He sought to get back to the air. It was a hard struggle, but he escaped, victorious and gasping to the surface. Despair awaited him. Feebly splashing with his hands, he moaned in bitter misery. I can't. I must. Oh, God, let me die. The moon, then in her third quarter, pushed out from behind the concealing clouds and shed a pale, soft glitter upon the sea. Upright in the water... Fifty yards away was a black triangular object. It was a fin. It approached him slowly. His last appeal had been heard. Before we get back to the show... I want to take a moment to say thank you to you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for following us. And thank you for the donations you've made to keep this podcast coming your way month after month. I'd originally envisioned a weekly collection of stories, songs, and conversations. But without being able to clear my schedule for 20 to 30 hours a week to prepare for that, and without the resources to pay a staff to help with the writing, editing, and coordinating, a once-a-month podcast became a more realistic goal. God knows, none of us are getting rich doing this, but none of us are going poor either. We're breaking even, I'd say. And that's because you took a couple of minutes to head to livefromtheloungepodcast.com. That's livefromtheloungepodcast.com. You clicked the donate button and shared a little bit of your own gratitude with us. Thanks. 
As someone in their late 50s, what I like to refer to as the harvest season of my life, I'm deeply connected to the thoughts and experiences of the four folks who make up this episode of The Seasons of Life. As you know, we started back in February asking five-year-olds some basic questions about their experiences and their feelings. I asked, what's on your mind? What's your favorite meal? What makes you happy, sad, angry, and afraid? What's your best memory? And what do you hope for the future? We asked the same questions to 10-year-olds in March, then middle schoolers, high schoolers, young adults, midlifers, and now we've reached the folks I'm calling harvesters. Next month, we'll conclude this series by talking with our elders. It's been a great joy to hear from all of these folks all year long, but these folks that you'll hear from today are the ones I relate to the most. I'm Janet, and I'm 66 and a half. It feels like being a four-year-old again, where every every month counts. Craig, and I am uh, 59, getting ready to turn uh, 60 the week of Christmas. I was raised to give a crap, so <laughs> so it's Loda and 61. Joe, 54. I'm going through was a pretty horrendous breakup, and. Uh, Nine years ago, my wife died in my arms, and uh, I've been with the partner for six years, and then she cheated on me too many times and lied about it too many times, and I said, well, let's have enough of that. And I thought it was going to be amicable, and, and then I let her have unfettered access to my home to get her stuff out. When I came back from out of town and doing the, the show, not all the stuff was out, and she had left another little hate bombs, like a, a relationship self-help book was rotting with mold in the bathtub. and. She left a shrine of photos of my dead wife for me to find. And uh, it had the intended effect. I was devastated and I was livid. And I made what I thought was a very reasonable boundary that she could no longer come in my home. It's eating up my mind. Like After I'm done with you, I have my therapist session at one and talk about it again. So I feel like I'm going through like a double grief of like I'm back to my Molly grief. And I also have all these terrible feelings about the breakup and the breakups don't get you the same kind of emotional support as you get when a spouse dies. A normal me would be, you know, just thinking about, you know, what am I going to do with, you know, my day or whatever. But because I have a child who's, you know, has a, a, an illness, you know, we don't know why or how, but she got a vaccine just before the Christmas breakfast last year, then in January, she said her eyes hurt like pain. And I thought she poked herself. So no big deal. She turns out she has this rare autoimmune disease. Um, we don't know if it was triggered by the booster shot, but she never had any problems in her entire life. And so this rare disease can debilitate her. You know, now we've been thrown this curveball, you know, that, you know, our daughter can potentially at any given moment have, you know, debilitating or fatal consequences to this new disease she has. What's really front of mind for me is I, I just left a really intensive uh, job that I had for 15 years. It was like all in 24-7. I was the head of South by Southwest Film. I was a lead programmer in the film festival and overseeing the execution and production and of the whole, uh, both the film festival and all the film content in the conference. It was something where I got to help 
people that I thought were talented. It was amazing, but it was really demanding. And I just stepped down after 15 years. And so I've been spending the last six months just really decompressing and thinking about what the different seasons of my life have been like. There were the single years, there was, you know, early working years, there was, I raised a couple of kids, there's been really different um, work elements to it. And this is for the first time. Now I get to kind of think about what to do when I don't have to do anything. So the concept of what's enough is really front of mind for me. Taking care of my mother and how eventually this will end. And that will be my, you know, my only living parent that that's sort of a monumental thing i think in everyone's life when they lose their last parent and then uh just making sure that my children i have twin sons are on the right path the other thing is just uh, finding time for my husband and i you know a special time with the person you're married to it was funny because i thought it was favorite food and i was going to say toast <laughs> but I remember the first time I ever went to Uchi in uh, Uchi's a, a, a really amazing sushi restaurant here in Austin. You wouldn't think Austin would be famous for sushi it's in the middle of the country, but but it is. It's good, you know, it's recognized nationally. And the very very first time I went to Uchi, right when we moved here, in 2004, and I had the omakase dinner. The chef just presents like ten courses. You just eat what the chef has decided to give to you. I couldn't believe it. I was just outstanding. So that was probably my favorite meal that I can remember. Molly and I, we made a deal years ago that if we ever got another national commercial or like a recurring round of show or something, like if stupid money came in, we were going to go eat at Charlie Trotter's. It was the primo Chicago fancy restaurant forever. It's like one of those places where you get 12 courses that are pre-set up with pairings with wine. And there was a guy at the other table who was being pretty inappropriate to the waitress. And a couple of times we were like, Miss, Miss, can you help us here, Miss? And she'd say, excuse me. And I was like, we, we really don't want anything. We were just helping you get away from him. And we'll do it every time. And she was like, that is so sweet of you. And then when he left, they that table left a, a $600 bottle of wine, like half full on the table. And she's like, this bottle is normally $600. It's yours. And we'd love to give you a tour of the cellars and the kitchen. And we did. And it was, it was just all fucking amazing. It's since shut down. He's passed away. No one could ever eat at Charlie Trotter's again. But what a remarkable restaurant it was for many, many years. Still, to this day, it was in Cabo San Lucas the first time I had lobster thermidor. Um, Matt and I went on an anniversary dinner at Chez Panisse. And it was wonderful. It was perfect. Alice Waters was there. She was celebrating her 35 or 40th year in business. Um, she's a legend. She's gracious. She's everything that you think. It was really one of those evenings that you're like, is this real? Like, is it, am I a part of this? And then eight months later, we took our neighbors there because they had uh, been watching our house. And um, Alice wasn't there. And it was a very poor, poor dinner. Like, everything about the night was off. The waiter was off. The wine was off. The food was just subpar. And I hate saying that about Chez Panisse. But we walked out thinking, how could we have such different experiences? One that we thought, this is the most phenomenal restaurant in the Bay Area. And one that we thought, are we ever going to come here again? I love feeling useful. 
I love kind of, you know, I really like feeling useful. I love being in great conversation with people, making connections and uh, engaging with people is what brings me joy. It it seems like such a faraway goal right now, but um, friends, God, friends, and, you know, I don't really have uh, family left, no parents, uncles, aunts, grandparents. I'm like the highest living in our stack of folks. Um, so what I've got is friends. And uh, I think also what brings me joy is being in the zone of making art. You know, there's like 10,000 hours. Years ago, I tried, I did the simple math and I was already at 40,000 hours of theater. So I'm probably at 50,000 at this, but like quadruple mastery of doing this thing in front of these people and feeling like I am on my game in a way I couldn't have been 10 years ago. That zone is beautiful. And also I am not the best painter, but when I'm creating the painting myself, it's me doing this little thing kind of for myself that I'm not even that good at. And I get in that zone the same kind of way and get locked in that joy of just purely escaping everything and being 100% in the moment. I think uh, just health and peace. You know, I would love to be rich enough to travel around the world, you know, throw money down on, you know, expensive cars. But to me, attainable is just health and peace. There's this 80-year-old woman on Instagram and she's doing yoga and all these exercises. And I'm like, I want to be her. Um, well, my husband makes me laugh a lot. And so that's that bring that makes me happy. I think uh big family events that because I didn't come from a big family, that people are laughing and playing games and everyone's trying to help out in the kitchen and make their own twist on things. Um so I'm very happy when I'm around people that are full of life and full of joy. I'm happy to see my mom. I think just what makes me happy is just that people are happy. I like giving things to people, whether they're homemade or whether they're out of the garden or whether they're something special that I find. It's about something that I think the person themselves will find special or find a memory out of. So um, that also brings me joy is giving something to somebody that is totally unique and off the beaten path and that they're not expecting. What breaks my heart is when you feel like you're not able to, you're you're not good enough to sit at the table. When you feel like they people don't value you enough to treat you funky. That makes me sad because it's like, I've never been that kind of person to other people. So when that's flipped, I'm like, well, why does that happen? I think when my sons, um, they make choices that are probably uh, not what I would choose, but also not good for themselves. I think that while we all raised kids and tried to have them have a better life than we did, maybe we were also unrealistic. We might have been too over uh, zealous about how maybe not giving them a reality dose a lot of times. And it makes me sad when they're not able to make that thought process because they've had it so easy. I just went and saw Stop Making Sense, which I hadn't liked when it first came out. But I thought like I felt guilty about not liking it. And uh, and I decided to go see it again. And I'm watching it and I'm really admiring the movie in a way. But it's made me desperately sit like I'm, I found myself crying 
as the movie was playing so many of the songs you know same as it ever was it's like the greatest song ever it's like and then i was also listening to alanis morissette uh just the other day and i'm just sobbing in the car listening to her now i don't know what that is and is that sad or is that emotional connection my wife my wife my wife i um i for years had long-term relationships that i never like thought this is the person i'm going to grow old with and die with and i thought the idea of being with someone that you were going to get old with was like fairy tale stuff. And then with Molly, that was the first time that I thought I was like, this is the person I'm going to grow old with for sure. And we even made the Greek mythology promise that we both had to die at the exact same time. <laughs> she couldn't keep that promise. So still things with um, Molly and the loss. And I know people look back with a, a maybe overly positive lens on things you've lost but this is not one of those situations where i've imagined it post molly's death she really was my everything and i it was i was hollowed out by that i think what pisses me off is that there's no empathy anymore it's like if you're not exactly like me then i don't really care what you're like and i don't want to do anything to do with you when things aren't fair um makes me angry i'm you know i'm, I'm I, I didn't know if i was sad or angry i'm sad and angry about the loss of women's rights in this country you know it's just desperately reproductive rights women's health freedom it just makes me insane mean racism oh injustice man injustice I feel it coming down on me these days i was brought up in a in a world in a childhood that unfairness and injustice didn't exist in the family union unit. So I was ill-prepared for the real world. Yeah. So I get so livid. And I see like police beating videos. That kind of injustice and unfairness to me can really make me angry. I'm probably afraid of being um, alone because I came from such a small family. You know, when my mom dies, if anything happened to my husband, if the kids, something tragic, I, I'm, I'm not really good alone. Right now, most prevalent on my mind is scared of losing my baby girl. But scared of losing her lover to death. She is a coot. She's articulate and, you know, opinionated and really smart and funny. And I, you know, just this whole thing looming over her, scared of that. I mean, I'm scared of not having enough money to sort of have a modest, you know, safe lifestyle. It feels kind of selfish, but I do feel that way. And what I'm really scared of is loss of, you know, somebody close to me. Certainly. I mean, I, I'm my husband's 69. I'm 66. And we we talk frankly about like one of us is going to go, you know, before the other. And it's sort of like you go. I don't want to go first. You go first. Today, I used ghee butter for the first time like it was regular butter. And I was like, just holy cow. This is like 10 times better than butter on toast, cooking eggs in it, whatever. This is crazy, ridiculously good. I can't believe I've lived this many years and didn't realize that there's a product better than butter. And I might never go back to butter. And I had no one to tell that to. And I thought about texting a friend or something. Well, that's dumb. That's a thing for your person. And I don't have a person. So I'm afraid of dying alone. When I would go to New York City, where I'm, I'm from outside New York City, but I've always loved New York City. My grandmother was there, and I lived there when I was in my early 20s on. And 
I remember on every corner, I think this is how I know how old I am because I have so many memories stacked up. It was almost like a tree, you know, tree rings. It's like me in New York City. It's kind of like, because there's so many deep memories. But I think, you know, outside of laughing with my husband and kids, I really loved being backstage at the, like the marquee theater during South by Southwest in the moment after a film is premiered, when the filmmakers and the talent are coming into the wings backstage before they go on stage for the Q and a, and there's this unbelievable sort of like vulnerability and the way they would deal with each other and sort of being part of this moment for them. I love that over and over and over again. When I was graduating from high school, I, my parents took us on a trip to Europe. It was really special to be with my mom and dad um, and be in places that were so amazing, like London and Rome and Paris. And I still have some of the pictures up because it just was one of those times when we were such a small family that um, I felt that, you know, I got their full attention and I felt that they really cared about, not cared about me, but cared about the experience that we were going to have. It's going to be tough because it's some, I've just so many with Molly. The one that comes to mind is on the day she died when we were bicycle riding. She told me a really filthy joke that involved hands and gestures and all kinds of things. And I've generally heard about every joke. So when she heard a joke that she knew I didn't know and was sharing this joke with me while we were riding bikes and using hands and gestures, which were integral to the story while still riding a bike, I was like, I mean, that was just amazing. And it was like one of the last things I remember us having an interaction on before the tree hit her. Till the end, she was filled with joy and told me a joke I had never heard before that was filthy and made me laugh. When I was a little girl, um, my sisters are all professional dancers. And uh, they taught me to dance when I was younger. And so um, me and these girls had made up a dance to do you know five years old we were all five years old and uh none of them showed up so i had to go on stage kind of count out their little parts that they were doing and do it and everybody liked it i would hope that the united states comes to its senses at some point and lets younger people have a voice and and start talking about what their hopes and dreams are and we we really find a way that we look at the common good for everyone. We stop this segregating and stop this marginalizing certain people. Most people, I would say, are trying to do the best they can with the circumstance they got. On my dad's deathbed, he told me, my mom, and my brother, just be kind to people. Just He was a very kind man, and he said, just be kind. Well, I hope that, you know, out of all this terrible world dysfunction and income disparity, that there might be some better paradigm that might emerge. I would hope that there's some new ways for people to think that stop the, I don't know, not stop. I mean, there's always been butchery and there's always been kind of a fundamental way that that humans are terrible to each other. But one would wish that that could change. I hope America can find its way past this horrible divide we're in right now. And of course, I blame the hard right for it. But I, I hope that this path doesn't continue, that just the division and the hatred within our own people, I, I hope that can turn around somehow. And I hope I can find 
peace and joy and, and another person, a person for me to get old with. I'm hoping that people like get it together, like just be okay with being themselves, but being okay with other people being themselves. Just be okay to be okay. My thanks to Craig from Santa Barbara, Joe from Chicago, Janet from New York by way of Texas, and Lota from Santa Clarita for sharing their thoughts and feelings with me. Next month, we'll conclude this series by hearing from folks in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. I met Tim Zender, also known as Mac, at church. He was an almost 30-year-old greeter at Emanuel Presbyterian Church, and he reminded me of my best friend Craig. He told me he was a musician. I told him I was an actor. We were both dubious of one another's claims. Nonetheless, I went to see Tim play with his twin brother Tom, a.k.a. Johnny, at the Troubadour Theater in West Hollywood. I was completely impressed with them and also relieved that I wouldn't have to come up with something nice to say after the show. They really were musicians. A few months later, Tim and Tom returned the favor by coming to a play I was in. They were relieved to discover that I was really an actor, too. I've been along the ride with these guys for 25 years now. We've raised kids together, vacationed together, shared too many meals to mention, and every time we are together, there's music. Such great music. They've been through a few incarnations over the years, but Double Batch Daddy is my absolute favorite. The trio with their alter egos, Johnny, Mac, and Backs on Drums, have been together for years, but Local Lemonade is their first album together, and this is the first single. It's called 101 Way. Never 
Just when I figured she could be figured out, she takes a wide turn down Canejo Creek. Just reconfigure what I never could figure out, then deeply drink this local lemonade. If you're in Los Angeles, Double Batch Daddy are hosting a release party and concert Friday, October 20th at Gratitude Market in Culver City. They're also playing at the Old Fella Pub. That's the A-U-L-D Fella Pub on October 25th. Don't miss them. The big question this month is how's your harvest? I planted a vegetable garden this year. During 2020, when my kids were back at home, we built a little raised bed under the crepe myrtle tree in the backyard. We filled it with soil and we grew some vegetables. It was nice to experience some growth during our season of lockdown. 2021 and 2022, I'm sorry to say, were years that the garden was neglected. We threw some wildflower seeds in there and got a nice explosion of color, but nothing that needed tending and certainly nothing we could eat. This year, I decided to get back at it. It was cold and wet here in L.A., so we got a bit of a late start, but I was determined. I was wary of the placement of our bed. Like most of our yard, it gets too much sun for shade plants and too much shade for plants that require full sun. My investment in the garden was fueled by curiosity. What could I get to grow in that spot, I wondered. Because the bed was neglected, it needed to be cleared of weeds and fallen wildflowers and then refilled with dozens of cubic feet of good, healthy soil. So much 
soil. Clearing the bed was a chore, but hauling the 50-pound bricks of soil from the hardware store and dumping it out into the bed was something else entirely. Once the soil was in, I set about constructing a grid irrigation system. I made 18 one-foot squares using standard drip line and lots of elbow and T connectors. I ran into a big obstacle the day I realized that the wall of our raised garden was only a couple of inches from the spigot I needed to access to get water into the bed. Too tight to install a plastic elbow connector, and my hoses were crimping at the sharp angle. If only there was a bendy connector that would screw into the water line but remain flexible enough not to crimp when it needed to turn at a right angle. Turns out, that miracle product actually exists, and my garden was back in business. My plan was to create a salsa garden with a couple of meaty tomato plants, jalapeno, a sweet pepper or two, and patches of cilantro. I went out on a limb and added a pair of zucchini plants, too. If there's a more satisfying garden plant than the zucchini, I've yet to meet it. It grows easily from seeds, and it grows big fast. It produces huge yellow blooms that become hearty vegetables, and it just keeps going and going until you and your neighbors are begging it to stop. I had little hope that our zucchini would produce much, considering the amount of shade the area gets, but what if, by some miraculous occurrence, it did? Even a small harvest of zucchini would be welcome. Ruby and Anne added some herbs, and our experiment was launched. As we come to the end of the growing season here in October, I'll say our salsa garden was a qualified success. The tomatoes grew well, but once the fruit started to come in, it was black and wrinkly on the bottom. I discovered this was called bottom end rot and could be due to over or under watering or not enough calcium in the soil. A trip to the garden store for some liquid calcium solved this problem, and the next batch of fruit came in wonderfully. The first square of cilantro came in early, ended up going to seed before the tomatoes or the jalapenos were ready. And speaking of the jalapenos, by the time the second round of healthy tomatoes came in, I had exactly one jalapeno ready to harvest, which turned out to be just enough for a small batch of delicious pico de gallo. The tomatoes kept coming in, even if the jalapenos didn't. And fortunately, Anne had dropped a basil plant in the garden, and it was thriving in the shade. I took to making a plate I called mini caprese. I sliced my small Roma-like tomatoes into little rounds. I topped them with the fresh basil and a slice of string cheese, which was just the perfect size. I drizzled them with olive oil, balsamic vinegar, salt, and pepper, and served them up as a nice little appetizer. Our zucchini started strong and went through all of the stages of growth except the producing vegetables part. We have two large plants that have thrown up wonderful yellow blooms over and over again, but have produced exactly zero zucchini for us to cook with. Bummer. At this point, in early October 2023, there are still a few tomatoes ready to harvest, and the jalapeno has increased its production by a factor of three. The sweet peppers and the zucchini didn't really take off, and the second batch of cilantro seeds never came in. Our herbs thrived, though. We'll definitely plant more of those next year. 
I'd say the work-to-reward ratio of my garden experiment skews more to the work side, but the rewards, such as they are, have been joyful. And I learned a lot. Tomatoes grow, zucchini doesn't. Herbs work well, sweet peppers don't. Jalapenos take a little more time while cilantro grows quick. The vegetable garden is such a touchstone for me. I watched it grow, in some cases from seed. I helped out when it was in trouble. I celebrated when it produced fruit. And now I'm watching it wither away until next spring. It's like each day, where you start with an idea of what you'd like to accomplish. You work through the morning with increasing intensity, take a break in the middle of the day to grab a bite to eat, get back to work in the afternoon, knock off as the sun goes down, take some time to refresh yourself for the next day, and you start again. The harvest time of each day is my favorite. It's that, how was your day, honey, time? where the successes and the failures of the day are shared with someone who loves and understands and supports you. The seasons of the year work the same way. The farmer starts the year with an inkling of what they'd like to accomplish, and they form a plan. With attention and intention, they clear the weeds and prepare the soil before they start planting. As the weather warms and the days grow longer and longer, they deal with the challenges that present themselves. In the middle of the year, when it's just too hot to bother, there might be time to take a little break, to recharge in preparation for the harvest. I was in my mid-thirties when I noticed how each day and each year and each lifetime share the same shape. That noticing prompted me to start planting seeds of intention in February and March of each year. I tend these notions throughout the spring and summer months, and I check back in when it got to October and November to see how the harvest came in. These days, as I begin my 60th trip around the sun, I've come to the beginning of the harvest time of my life. I imagine that the next 10 to 15 years, God willing, will involve a little more planting and reaping in the garden I've sown. But I'm starting to look back across the years to take stock of the successes and failures of this lifetime. Not so much to beam with pride or to wallow in self-pity, but more to integrate the who I am with the what I've done. So that when I do choose to lay down my tools for good, I can do it with grace and dignity. This October, as the year is running down, I'd invite you to take stock of your harvest. Which of your intentions grew well? Which ones didn't quite come through? Do this without judgment if you can. Just notice which crops came in and which didn't. Maybe seek to answer the why of it all and consider how you might adjust your plans when planting time comes around again. In life's garden, we tend to rows of work, family, health, and community. They cycle like the seasons, through birth, growth, withering, death, and back to birth. My wish for you is an abundant harvest where work is satisfying and rewarding, where you have a family that you've chosen or that you're related to who love and respect you, where you feel comfortable in your own body and where you're connected to the larger world 
through alliances with like-minded people, as well as those who feel safe enough to challenge your assumptions. In life, it works just like it does in the garden. If you plant smart and tend well, you'll reap a bountiful harvest. That's October. I hope the rest of your month is filled with thrilling tricks, tasty treats, and a bountiful harvest. Here's the who did what. The Rhythm of the Seasons is produced by Anne Kloss Farley. Double Batch Daddy played Neath a Low Waning Moon and 101 Way. Their first album, Local Lemonade, will be released on November 4th. John Ballinger wrote and performed our theme song. Special thanks to Craig, Lota, Joe and Janet for sharing their thoughts and feelings with us. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. <laughs>